Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So the media is critical here uh, because one can uh, talk as much as one likes and for uh, Thangam, Ronnie and I try and make the case in the in the House of Commons, but if it's not getting any amplification in the media, um, then it's not on the immediate agenda of uh, of the decision makers. Well, by goodness, it is now. You're listening to Stop and Search on the Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by Acast in association with Elite UK, and this is the Parliament Podcast. So here we go. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Thank you so much for joining us again. And as I said, this is a very special episode. It's the Parliament Podcast. We're not entirely sure that many podcasts have been recorded on the parliamentary estate before because there's a lot of hoops to jump through. We have to list all of our gear that's going through security. We have to have a tight guest list. It was a brilliant day for drug policy. There was a lot of news breaking. We had the case of Billy Caldwell and Charlotte Caldwell, the, the mum that flew to Canada and back to obtain cannabis oil for her son and severe epilepsy home office originally confiscated the oil and then gave it back under a special license alfie dingley a child that was also suffering that was awaiting a special home office license lord william haig came out in the news uh, the very night before saying we need to legalize cannabis across the board there was just lots going on the media was full of drug policy and we was lucky enough to be in parliament speaking about this so we've got Crispin Blunt MP, who is a Conservative member. We could not do this podcast without him. His office was superb. Thank you so much, Tarsalo, for organising all of this. They honestly did so much for us, and thank you so much. Also, we've got Ronnie Cowan MP. He was a friend of ours. He's from SNP. You may have heard him on previous podcasts. And we've got Thangan Debonair, who is from Labour, who is, again, very, very knowledgeable on this issue of job policy. Let's get on with it. Let's get straight into this. Let's find out what's going on actually in Parliament on drug policy from all of these different political parties. Here we go. Thank you so much for coming down. As you know, this is a quite a strange day for drug policy. There's lots going on. We've got medicinal cannabis that's coming to the forefront with the Alfie Dingley case and Billy Caldwell case. And William Haig, Lord Haig, spoke out today about how we should go further than that and legalise cannabis for the sake of public health. So 
we've got a lot to talk about on the panel. Um, there's going to be all sorts of uh, nuances of in-jail policy as well that we hopefully get to discuss as well. But just a quick mention, what we're doing is a podcast. So this is the Stop and Search podcast that we're going to broadcast later on. And we're officially award-winning now. We, we've got two silver awards. <laughs> So we, at the British Podcast Award, we've got Best Current Affairs, Silver Medal and the Spires Podcast. And we beat Ed Miliband, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> he came below us. So. Uh, yes, and Ed Miliband, he did spoke out he, after, after Neve went on the Reasons to be Cheerful podcast. I think we, a round of applause for Neve, I think. Because it was, it was a genuinely brilliant podcast. And that's, I think, going to lead us to the first question is... Just how the alternative media has played a part in this. It's, we did have Allegra Stratton, who was supposed to be here tonight, but she had to get called away on a job, um, just as the same as we might have call-outs on our MPs tonight. So, But I think, Ronnie, you're, you're a friend of our podcast, and you've done this before. Are we getting to the point now where we're having a social movement from the bottom up, or are we actually now going to actually have some movement within policymaking? No, I, I think there's been a social movement from the bottom up for some time. I think hopefully what we're seeing, particularly in the last week or so, is people within, not these walls, but across the road, in the, the Palace of Westminster, actually listening to what's being said. And a lot of it, we have to say, has come from the most tragic stories. I mean, what, what, medicinal cannabis or medical cannabis is hot right now. But that's because of the tragic stories we're hearing from Billy Caldwell and Murray Gray and Alfie Dingley. And I was saying around to folk, if you've got somebody in that horrific situation in your constituency, and you take that person to your MP, then you'll see individually people starting to say, I get it, I get the use of medical cannabis. And, and I think, Crispin, as well, as you've been outspoken on this for a little while now, uh, have you heard personally from constituents, but also through the media, have you heard these stories that are now getting some traction within the policymakers? Well, it's noticeable the number of colleagues who were rising both on the urgent question yesterday and on the statement today... Uh, who are presenting constituents' cases. And I was aware of the Caldwell and the Dingley cases, uh, but, not a, but not aware of other people saying there were scores of cases sitting behind them. But now suddenly we're seeing these scores of cases emerge, of people who are going to need uh, medicine derived from cannabis. And, of course, medicine derived from cannabis is in the places it is in, uh, and this ludicrous scheduling, uh, partly because of the, uh, the entirely erroneous basis on which our entire drug laws sit. And it all goes back to the war on prohibition and the uh, American system triumphing over the British system, which has been brilliantly uh, documented in uh, uh, Neil's upcoming book. Uh, and um, so we should show the show the book to the, the, uh, the, the watching uh, the, watch, the watching public. Uh, and the, and so these things are interlinked. Although strictly, medicine from cannabis should be a medical issue. And the regulation and licensing of, uh, of, a, of a legal drugs market uh, set against prohibition is, a, in that sense, is a much wider policy discussion about the overall costs and benefits to society of those two, of those two policy approaches. And Thangham, I think that one of the, the main issues that a lot of us in this audience will have is that drug policy and also medicinal cannabis has fallen under the Home Office and not necessarily the Department of Health. Is there any traction that we can actually have some differences within that policy now? 
I uh, Will it move to health? Well, um, I'm the Labour health whip, so the amount of comment I can make on health policy is, is limited. So I'm going to say, I'm going to do a really annoying politician <laughs> thing and slightly duck your question. Um, but I think that it has to be made a health issue. And I think in the question of should we legalise and regulate a whole stack of drugs, um, the reason for me it has to be a health issue is when you look at the health impacts and you compare them with the two legal drugs, alcohol and tobacco, that you get the clearest arguments for me about why we need to at least be looking at legalisation regulation, and regulation, because that's how you get the health impacts and that's, uh, that's how you get the health impacts known about, that's how you get information to people. When I look out of my office window in Bristol um, and people say to me, oh, we shouldn't have any sort of drug consumption rooms, there shouldn't be any legalisation of drugs because then people will sell drugs. I can look out my office window and watch drugs being sold all the time and consumed. I've seen any number of drugs every single day and some of them not very pleasantly, some of them very dangerously, some of them putting other people at risk, some of them not particularly dangerously but they're buying unregulated drugs. They've got no idea what they're buying or selling or taking. Now I don't want my constituents to be at that much of risk and so to bring it back to why is it a health issue because there are impacts on health and why would we not at least want to look at a framework which says if I buy a glass of wine at a pub or a bottle of wine from an off-licence, which I don't because I choose not to drink, but I can get information about that. I can get information which, in my view, should be better information, but I can at least get some information. If I buy tobacco, I get a great big picture telling me what it's going to do to my health. But for other drugs, there is no information, and that has health consequences. You took part in some great documentary footage lately on BBC Three where... Again, you, you were at the forefront. You, you were watching what's going on with people that are suffering with addiction. Um, can you just give me a bit of an insight in your own personal journey within this, that you've, you've seen what it is like with people that have suffered with trauma that now segue into addiction, and how that affects you as a, as a person and a politician? It was so mainstream, it was even on BBC One, after <laughs> it was on BBC Three. It was an interesting experience because I came to it with my own views, um, which as a new-ish politician, well, very new politician when I was first approached by the BBC, I was quite nervous about how far I should go with them, but I knew that I had a duty to represent the people in my constituency and I took the makers of that programme on a walk from my house to my office to point out along the way all the different ways that I could see the current legal system for responding to drugs affecting my constituents from needles in the ditch to the fact that someone is quite happily stoned over here but has probably not got accurate information about things that he needs to know about what it is he's just consumed to someone with a serious drug addiction problem and someone else has just been burgled because of the price of their particular drug and someone else who is probably at serious risk of a mental health problem but again partly because they haven't got adequate information it was a brilliant experience I mean taking part in a documentary is pretty risky but I think it was transformative for my constituency because people have seen what's around them including in places that they will walk past all the time and never quite realised what was going on and seen what the impact is how much has the media played a part in this, Crispin? Do you think that we are getting to the point now where the people are understanding the nuance of it? Because you frame in terms of legalisation, it straight away scares people. It makes people think free for all. But are we getting to understand what control, regulation and taxation means now, do you think? Uh, we're starting on the journey. And it's going to be uh, important that the... Uh, uh, I mean, how, how the media have... Uh, in that sense, shaped our laws is rather well documented in um, uh, in the book, and uh, and how the tabloids re reacted to various stories in the 1960s and then and and, and subsequently. 
Uh, it's obviously rather important that Mr. Paul Dacre is no longer going to be the editor of the Daily Mail at the end of the, uh, at the, uh, at the, end of the year. Um, and I think Geordie Greg is, is, is what I understand, certainly from the attitude the Mail on Sunday's taken, is rather, is, uh, rather more open uh, on this issue. Uh, however, uh, we've got to see as to how, obviously, the continuing uh, power of the, of the newspapers, but media is, is much more diverse uh, than, it, than, it, than it was before. Uh, but, you, but the power of the media is really demonstrated this week in the incredibly effective way in which the, uh, Billy Caldwell's story was picked up and presented to the media and, the, the, and once the media got hold of the, hold of the story, um, they weren't going to let go. You know, here was a little boy that needed to be saved and, of course, that's a, it's a great human story just in, in, it, in itself. And, of course, it had followed the Alfie Dingley story, which is done in exactly the same way. Uh, and uh, there was, you know, th- that campaign was able to get 370,000 signatures on a petition uh, and then to be taken down Downing Street. So the media is critical here uh, because one can uh, talk as much as one likes and for uh, Thangham, Ronnie and I try and make the case in the, in the House of Commons. But if it's not getting any amplification in the media, um, then it's not on the immediate agenda of... Uh, of the decision makers well by goodness it is now can you give us a little bit of insight specifically for the podcast of the Alfie Dingley case because you were there both both of you I think for the going to the parliament uh, down the street and handing over the, the signatures and of course you had public figure support in Patrick Stewart as well as Joanna Lumley do we need public figure support are we getting to the point now where we need to have that that unification that everybody's having a conversation Public figures, I mean, it's a, it's a term. What it really means is it's not just about politicians. I mean, people get sick to death of politicians banging on about things. So if somebody they can associate with steps up and says, you know what, I've got nothing in this, I'm not looking for your vote, I'm not going back to you, but I really care about this and I'm informed about this, then yeah, it amplifies the whichever cause they support. Uh, a lot of the lobbying that goes on here is backed up by public figures, but that's because it reaches beyond politicians saying to people, you know, vote for me, this is what I'm about. And you don't have any party affiliation either. So people might sort of look at me and think, well, he's SNP, and do, and think, well, I'm not listening to him, simply because he's SNP. That's the deal. Whereas people can look at someone like Patrick Stewart and say, well, he's captain of the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> and who would argue with that? <laughs> and I, I think as well, Crispin, that there is, strangely, what most of us in this room would, I think, attest to is that Drug policy reform isn't set to one party or another. It is very much cross-party. We do get it from all sections of Labour, Conservative. What is it like within your party at the moment of being quite outspoken on drug policy reform? Is there much within your social circles that agree with you privately? Or is it very much a case of what we see on record is how people's stances are? I'm finding, uh, when I began to get engaged in this, uh, that... You know, colleagues would then be privately quite encouraging. So we would have a, uh, a debate uh, uh, in the House and then uh, the minister would have to take the debate, uh, bang out the government line, and then quietly thereafter would be saying, you know, keep going. Uh, uh, and uh, obviously that attitude will vary depending on what the issue is. I mean, the truth of it is that within the Conservative Party now, there is a very difficult to find 
a colleague who is not supportive of getting medicine from cannabis. It is kind of blindingly obvious. There is a significant anxiety about going further than that. Uh, now, the public would appear to be kind of in the same place. So they're kind of probably 80-20 in favour of medicine from cannabis, and the 20 probably just don't understand. Um, and the, but on the, on the wider issue, it's probably 50-50 at the, at the minute. And that reflects the experience in the United States as well, and where the, you know, the referendums that happened in the states that have, that have produced a legal market have often only just been got over the line. Uh, and then the states have had to react because their legislators and regulators have been told to then deliver a, a regulated licensed market. But, Crispin, do you think that some of that is possibly because people are going on, uh, they're, they're developing their own knowledge of what the impact of our current drug laws are. I noticed when you and I were in Seattle and we were talking to legislators, really interesting lines of argument. One of the line of argument, lines of argument which I really responded to, and I think a lot of our constituents would, was by destroying the drug dealer's business model, you're actually ultimately going to protect more children from harmful drug use. And that one I really, really, I, I mean, it was just so obvious the way he explained it. And when we were on the bus in Seattle, I mean, I used the bus a lot around there, and as the legislator later had said there were all these posters up everywhere where they'd done a lot of data capture of the proportion of children and young people aged I think it was between 14 and 18 who'd never used drugs and and it was really interesting that they decided to go with actually making drugs legal will make it harder for children and young people to take drugs and and you can really see it in the way that they run their their cannabis market uh, which is incredibly efficient, very strict. There is nobody smoking outside a cannabis shop. Uh, your ID gets checked as you go in. And I have to say, when I went in, in the interest of research, you understand, I went in, because uh, that guy just told us about it, see, and I thought, is this really true? So I went with, with my young man, and we were both asked to show our passports. Now, we were flattered, because it's been a long time since either of us been asked how old we were. And, but then again, you could, you could also, so we asked this guy, you know, what else happens in here to check age? And your age, your ID is checked again at point of sale, and the way the business model is treated, you can kind of see that actually this makes it a lot less attractive for a drug dealer to go and try and sell drugs to children when actually if you're a regulated, licensed, legal cannabis seller, you, you can do far better on the regulated market. I thought it was a brilliant argument. I think Ronnie wanted to say something. Uh, no, it absolutely is a great argument, but uh, if you remember what happened was it today or yesterday when we were talking about the, the medical cannabis, the number of people that stood up in there and said, oh, this is a gateway to recreational cannabis. And if you smoke cannabis... It's going to do your head. You're going to be psychotic. You're going to be, you know, there's that sort of misinformation out there, which we've got a problem with. And we have to, if we're going to get medical cannabis through, we have to accept that's what we are going after. And for the good of those people who need it right now, that's the end game. Beyond that, we can roll in and it will divide a lot of people. A lot of people who, who will support the medical cannabis have already said, I'm not interested in having this recreationally. But the information out there is, as those people don't currently get, if we regulate it, the stuff which is doing the damage just now will not be available to people. We will know what's in it. It's not going to be cut with all sorts of crap. It's, it is going to cause you all the problems, and that's the barrier they have to get, get over. And the example you gave there in, in Seattle is exactly the information we have to give out to people. So I think a wee trip to Seattle is probably in the cards for 650 MPs. <laughs> <laughs> you can follow Thangam and I. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, what's uh, plainly happening there is that the 
legal supply chain is putting the illegal supply chain out of business because yeah. it's actually a damn sight more expensive to produce something illegally uh, than it is to produce it to produce it legally your costs of business of the people you've got to pay and the uh, and, and the rest to get your uh, product to market is significantly greater uh, and so if you've got a, a legal a legal supply chain now it will take it will take time in uh, the case of the legal cannabis markets for the legally supplied cannabis to begin to to uh, significantly have displaced all the illegal supply chain because of the uh, the prevalence of the illegal supply chain in the uh, in, in the United States. But it will happen. Um, but it is. But with other drugs, it is uh, given uh, how the, the business model works. Um, that would be much more rapid in terms of uh, how a legal supply chain would simply make it simply not people worth people's while in uh, the illegal supply of drugs. Uh, uh, if we ever get to the stage where we then have a, a proper assessment and end prohibition. Uh, so, th what we what's on our side is the evidence, and and also the growing and I do think it is growing understanding of the sheer hypocrisy of the fact that this evening, uh, Crispin and Ronnie and I can can all go and purchase th at least one very very legal drug very very easily on the estate of the Palace of Westminster, and it's called alcohol, and and that is legal. And I'm not arguing for it to be illegal, but it is legal. It does cause cancer. It does cause various other diseases. It does contribute to various forms of, of antisocial behaviour. It's a contributing factor, not a causal factor, but it's there. And we can do. We can go and buy that legally, but it's regulated. And at least I know if I went to buy and bottle, buy a bottle of wine, what would be in it would be wine, and that I would be able to tell what percentage alcohol it was, and those sorts of things. And I think that. I find my conversations with colleagues are gradually people are understanding that the, the arguments don't stack up. If you make an argument about this particular drug being bad for you, therefore it should remain illegal. Well, so is, ca so is alcohol and so is tobacco. And we've found a way to live with that by regulating the heck out of both of them. And that's the thing. I, I think most of us use that argument is that we're good at regulating things in this that's country. Right. And within that regulation system, you can do tweaks like minimum price. And, and the, the drugs minister last year, do you remember, Chris, the, the, she said, the, the then drugs minister said, she, her motto to her kids were, was, if you can't buy it in boots, don't take it. And which was absolutely ridiculous because I'd sat in boots earlier that week with a guy who'd come in to collect his, to have his legally prescribed heroin, which he consumed about two metres away from me. So in boots. And so that argument doesn't stack up. It doesn't make any sort of sense. Plus, you can legally in boots buy all sorts of opiate drugs, which arguably are causing people an awful lot of harm and which are incredibly ad addictive. So there are all sorts of holes in that, those arguments. Now, the difference I've seen is that they're being made in Parliament. All sorts of members of Parliament are making those arguments. And even if we're not saying, therefore, I think you should do X, just the fact that we're raising them and saying, there's a problem here, there's a problem here, there's a problem here. I think that's real progress. And that is a great point, is that there ex we can see on our doorstep existing models. We, In my hometown, we've got a Boots that does the methadone dispensing system. On the counter, there's a leaflet saying, if you've got drug and alcohol problems, seek help, and this is the number you can call. So why, when we've got this model of compassion and understanding, what has held us back at this point, Ronnie? Why have we still got a position? Is it the media? Is it just intransience? Nothing happens quickly in this place, and I've always said before, unless there's votes in it, it's very hard to get politicians to get behind it. There are always going to be some who will see the worthy cause and say, that's something I've got to go after. But it's also pressure from whips. There's pressure of the government to stay in power. You can imagine if the government turned around tomorrow and said, you know what, drugs, let's legalise them all. You know? But what, what position would that put them in? They may turn into the biggest vote winner of all time, but they don't know that. 
they'll be, they'll be benchmarking this, they'll be trying and testing, they'll be putting uh, behind the scenes, they'll be in surveys left, right and centre. What's people's views on this? Once a party see that's the views of people, that tends to be the path they're going to go down. Uh, so they'll be doing lots of research behind this, I hope, because it might uh, open their eyes to lots of things. But ultimately, what slowed it down is this place moves slowly. And yes, the media from a long, long time ago started there. No, drugs are crazy. I've only just started reading Neil's uh, second book. But already I'm into the bit where the tabloid, paper, tabloid, tabloid newspapers are going hard on, on, on um, amphetamines. You know, that was the first one they got amphetamines. They said, oh, this is bad stuff. This is bad stuff, you know. And then made it illegal. And that's when the trouble kicked off. You know? And there'd be road back then. It's all oh, stop, we got it wrong. The whole drug scene, the whole, uh, could be completely different now. They, they, don't, they don't like to admit they're wrong. You know? And even even this medical cannabis, we get medical cannabis to go through a panel of experts to say, yeah, you can have it and you can have it. There's 10,000 people knocking on the door saying, I've got exactly the same symptoms. They're going to take their time before they say, okay, for we're going to allow GPs to prescribe this for you. Because if they do it overnight, that means we got it wrong. The, the environment is changing. So you've got the Global Commission on on drugs policy, uh, with, what, 15 former heads of state on that, with people like George Schultz and Kofi Annan and the rest. I mean, that is a very authoritative body that have kind of looked at what's happened in their own countries and, obviously, sadly, once they're out of office, have gone, well, hang on a minute, this is... We're not in the right place in terms of a policy in our countries. And if you're being the president of Mexico or Colombia and everything else and your entire country has been uh, at risk of collapse in front of the cartels who were then running a business in that area, you have a very clear view about the merits of of prohibition as a uh, as, as a policy so there's a global conversation going on uh, and for and I suppose on the back of that global conversation which obviously led into the 2016 UN uh, <coughs> uh, UN assembly looking at this it didn't quite go to didn't quite go to plan um, but there's always going to be probably opposition it would appear from the Russian and Russians and Chinese we have to work out a way uh, to work our way around that in the short in the short to medium term but for me as a politician, you asked what my uh, colleagues thought about it. Um, uh, I have felt able to get into this debate. Um, it is true partly because I've slid off the greasy pole in both parliamentary and ministerial terms. Uh, and I've probably got another decade in this, in the, in this place, I hope, it's the electorate, electorate willing. Uh, and this is a huge, this is a huge issue. I was prisons minister for two and a half years, so I saw what the consequences were within the criminal justice system. Um, and because I left school aged 18 to go straight into the army and then was a serving soldier whilst I was at university, I'm one of those sad politicians who are actually able to ask the question, have you ever used it at, uh, at university? And the answer is no. Um, the first time I took cannabis was visiting uh, San Francisco and Seattle over Easter, um, where I'd help myself to a mint or two. Um, to see what to see to see to see to see, to, to, to see what the, to see what to see what the effect was. Frankly, I didn't like it very much, um, so I wouldn't actually, you know, uh, in that sense, recommend it to people. But it'll have a different effect on on different people. Um, but uh, uh, and so perhaps I then found myself in a rather um, unique position of being able to step into this debate. Uh, but I actually feel that this debate is much more mainstream now, even uh, than it was two years ago. And one is not. Um, so quite so wildly eccentric um, being taking this up as an issue as one was uh, before and today has been a huge day in terms of uh, moving the debate on in the UK and for William Hague to uh, that article today the coincidence of those, the two events today the statement saying they're going to review medical cannabis and William Hague's uh, article in, in the Telegraph is this is a red letter day for reform.
And also Ed Miliband spoke out today as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think he won't be the only one in the coming days. I mean, le- Jeff Smith and I are launching the Labour campaign for drug policy lo- drug policy reform. can't remember how we worded it. We're having our launch event soon. And that's that's to try and get Labour members in my party sort of interested in in why we need reform. So, And what we've done is we've been quite cautious in saying we're not prescribing anything. We're, we're asking you to acknowledge that the current system doesn't work. And then what we'll do is try and work out how we go from here. Jeff and I have got our own views but we think that it would be good if we brought our party with us and sometimes that sort of nudge and sort of carrot thing you know we, we you have to work that but I felt today was a really huge day I mean some people said things both in and out of the chamber that I never thought I'd heard I'd hear said and that that's a huge deal and I do think that matters I think that matters that all of all of you know this because I I think if you don't have a degree of public support it's very difficult you think of Paul Flynn I mean he's been rattling on on this policy issue it's going to go any minute isn't it Paul Flynn's been trying to get this through four years but for ages he's just been you know Flynn he's doing that thing again and now there's there it is so we have to go because we have eight minutes to go and vote against each other or something um so do, we'll try and come back So what happened here, you may have heard it in the background, is the division bell rang. And what that is, is essentially a voting alarm. So it goes off and then MPs have to rush to the yes lobby or the no lobby to register their vote, which means we was about 20 minutes without our MPs. But it's OK, because there was such a knowledgeable audience that we picked on a few. We've got Steve Rolls from Transform Drug Policy Foundation, who you would have heard on previous podcasts of ours. We've also got Neve Eastwood from Release, who's coming up on future podcast episodes. And of course, we've got Neil Woods, who is chairperson of Elite UK, friend of mine, a former undercover detective, and author of the new book, Drug Wars. We have a chat amongst ourselves, and then the MPs come back. We, we're lucky to have Ronnie Cowan come back, and also Crispin Blunt. Thangham Debonair had to uh, leave at this point, so we thank him very, very much for contributing. So let's get straight back into this then, and I'll speak to you at the end. This is the second part. Today has been a strange old day, and it? everything seems to be kicking off. We... You two have been in the reform a lot longer than what we have, but uh, <laughs> that doesn't mean to sound bad. Don't don't laugh at that. I, that's not an insult, honestly. That's, I, I insulted Danny, Danny Cushlett, the founder of Transform recently. I, yeah, I called him the grandfather of reform. Which, like, and it was a tweet. So you would have thought I would have thought of that. But, but anyway, Steve, in your tenure in drug policy reform, does, does it feel different at the moment? Yeah, I think if it, it seems like there's a, there's a combination of um, factors have moved the sort of political environment to a point where change suddenly doesn't just seem possible. It's beginning to seem quite likely. And I think things like William Hague coming out, calling for legalisation, which isn't something you would have guessed was going to happen in, at all. And, and uh, Ian Duncan Smith calling for supporting medical cannabis, things like that, which are just really quite surprising maybe they're not that surprising i mean i think you've seen uh authoritative voices like you know the the british medical journal coming out and out calling for for, for legalization of all drugs and regulation from a from a public health perspective you've seen the times editorial calling for legalization of all drugs you've seen um increasing numbers of ngos from from different fields getting on board from, from development and from economics and from, from all over the place, saying, yes, this needs to happen, this impacts on us. And you've seen public figures and just 
just the the media the media debate and the public debate just seems to have moved on markedly to a place where people are feeling safe to talk about it now and i think um we're not there yet but we're, we are rapidly approaching a tipping point and i think what's happened this week is testimony to that and that's, that's a really good point is how safe people feel in voicing and i think neve is that you're a good person to that both in the organization if you don't know who neve is from she's from release a massive organization that deal with well if you can explain neve so Steve needed no introduction. Um, so Release is the UK centre. <laughs> is the UK centre of expertise on drugs and drug laws, and we provide legal services to people who use drugs both recreationally and problematically, and campaign for reform of the drug laws, and in particular to end the criminalisation of uh, possession and personal use offences across all drugs. So that's what we do. And do you think that people are feeling safer now in a public realm to actually have a voice on this? Because before you could argue it is, well, some people argued it was political suicide to step up and voice for reform. But do you think now people are realising that there is a wrong side of history here and they could be about to make some jumps? I mean, I think if we're talking specifically about political characters, then yes, absolutely. I think people are, politicians feel that there is a space to have this conversation. And I have to say, I, I, I think that's, resulted not just um, because of recent events, but if we go back to the establishment of the Global Commission on Drug Policy in 2011 and the influence that these people have had on the global debate and legitimised it in some way. So as you pointed out, Steve and I are long in the tooth in this game, probably too long. Um, but but honestly, I, I don't know if you'd agree, Steve, but back in the noughties when we used to do media, it did kind of feel like you were a bit left field, that you were treating like you were kind of just doing this because you know what, you wanted to get stoned whether you were a drug user or not. But I feel like once you had that legitimacy and that cover, that suddenly the debate became a relevant debate and a debate that was worth having and one that was based on evidence and I think that cannot be ignored here that all of the NGOs that have been involved in this field, everybody from the Global Commission, Transform, Ourselves, Leap, others across the globe have really worked to build the evidence base here. I mean so these decisions happening now are not happening in the absence of evidence. It's because of that foundation that I think it's contributed and obviously this week the stories of those mums and their kids has just been heartbreaking and the fact that the government moved so quickly like I, I I don't think I've ever seen a government move so fast to 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 make sure that they could at least deal with Billy's case over the weekend so I think those human stories have been fundamentally important but also to all the hard work that everybody in this room and in NGOs anyone's child all of the the great campaigns across the globe have really sort of helped to build that and that, that is key, isn't it, Neil, is that we can attest to that in what we do, the, the mixing of the personal testimonies, both from law enforcement, but also who, I mean, you make it clear in your previous book and this book, the, the people that you've harmed doing a policing role. And do you think we're actually getting to the point now where we're actually managed to have that conversation? Well, yes, I, I hope so. I mean, that's one thing I found encouraging from what William Haig said today, is that he, he mentioned organised crime. And that's often, from my point of view, missing from the conversation that we need to talk. We need to realise just how bad things are. And um, I should mention the name of the book, shouldn't I? You think It's called, it's called Drug Wars. Um, it's writ written together with my brilliant co-writer who's in the audience there, J.S. Raffaele. Um, and, um, and basically, I, I hope that it shows just just how bad things are actually just 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 how far 
uh, the corruption from organised crime has come. So, so I hope that that, that side of the conversation is going to become uh, more prevalent now, now that there's more political voices speaking about it. So this was all just a ruse, just to, for a book launch, really? <laughs> I thought we were going to do a drug war special. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Dave. No, just to say and, and to add, I mean, I think part of the, the cover that politicians have are the fact that police forces across the country are actually recognising the failure of drug policy. And we have police officers here tonight. I'm not, I don't know if you want me to mention you on podcast, but okay. So from Thames Valley Police, people like Jason Q, who are showing huge leadership on this issue, recognising the futility of the current approach and in the absence of national leadership are actually implementing drug policy reform locally and that's probably one of the most exciting things in our work I think in the last two three years. Yeah I mean I think the the, the absence of leadership from central government that 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 void has to a significant extent been filled by uh, local authorities and local police forces um, with a whole series of uh, uh, um, initiatives. So, so the diversion schemes, kind of de facto decriminalisation of possession. We've seen the, the drug testing uh, uh, at festivals and now in city centres for, for users to use. Um, and, and we've seen a, a big push for um, uh, supervised drug consumption spaces. Um, and that's all come from uh, a, a local, local government show, showing the leadership that... that um, central government ha has failed to do and that's been enormously important and I think that's you know probably going to be the pattern for, for the foreseeable future and, and uh, you know it, it, it's it's just part of this sort of um, combination it's all sort of a lot of things seem to be aligning so you've got the human stories you've got the local initiatives you've got the sort of authoritative voices from the police and the medical agencies you've got the international international reform I mean that you know cannabis legalization is for example um, is no longer a theoretical sort of debate down the pub. It's, you know, California's doing it. Canada is legalising cannabis this week nationally. Um, Uruguay's already done it, multiple states. Uh, I, was in, I was in Denmark last week, in the Denmark Parliament, with, and, and they were sort of, you know, discussing not, not uh, if they should legalise, but how, what the best way to do it was. And Denmark could well be the first country to legalise cannabis in the EU. And there's another... It'd be a domino effect, I think, a bit like in... Um, in the US, once one country does it in the EU, Spain and Italy and the Netherlands and a whole bunch of other places are just lining up to, to, to follow suit. They just need that sort of little bit of licence to, to move forward with it. So there's all sorts of things happening and it, yeah, it just feels like um, drug reform, has, has, the, the work has been done, the water is built up behind the dam and the cracks are showing it's about to, to, to be unleashed, I think. And, and that is key, I think, what Neve said is that when, when the PCC role was conceived, there's a lot of people that were sceptical about it. It, it. You know, to politicise the police force didn't necessarily make sense, but it's been such a benefit to what we do in our sector, isn't it? It was that you can do these tangible reforms on the ground. And we are getting to that point now, like we said with Jason and Mike Barton, Ron Hogg in Durham, Arthur Jones in Wales. Do you think we are going to get a police-led reform approach as well as what's going on within the political motions? Yeah, I think so. As, um, as Steve said, I think that's going to continue. I mean, we've only had a hint of what's going to be achieved in the West Midlands, I think, with David Jameson. I mean, he, he's working hard to develop those policies and, and to sell them. And he was only in Switzerland a couple of weeks ago looking at how heroin-assisted treatment works there. And he's, I think he's going to continue to be a great advocate. I mean, in West Mids, it's the second biggest police force in the country. And, and we know from Durham, that when police do these things, then evidence comes from it. And it's evidence that we follow. And that's it, it's, uh, to back up another thing that, that 
that both Neve and Steve has said is that this is um, this is a, as a result of the movement growing over time and providing the evidence. And because I remember as a detective sergeant being incredibly disillusioned with with our drug policy and seeing how vulnerable people were being crushed by current drug policy, it was actually I was actually inspired by reading everything I could from. Uh, transform and release and I certainly wouldn't have been able to go into doing reform unless unless they had those publications Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And again, round of applause for Stephen Neve because I have genuinely been at the forefront of this. So. Was, I, I learned from you too as I came into this. You, you start off and you feel naive. You don't know what's you going on. You really are making us feel old. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have a Christmas party and everything. So, so. But I, I did. I, I generally thought na- felt naive when I came into this. I didn't know how to do the campaigning work. So you, you talk so much. And Neve, at the moment, you've got an absolutely amazing initiative at the moment with the app, what's going on. We sp- spoke to Avinash about it uh, last week when we was in the... Waterstones with Jonathan Miller from Channel 4 News, just a name drop, talking about the Philippines. Um, can you give us a bit of background on what's going on with the app? Well, firstly, I should say our head of legal services, Kirsty Dice, who is in the audience tonight, is the architect behind the app. So, not myself. Um, but essentially, it's an app. It's also supported with guide and a video, loads of videos on our website, which really empowers people to navigate the criminal justice system when they're caught in possession of drugs. So, currently, legal aid, because we know austerity has bitten all parts of society, but in particular, the criminal justice system. So, legal aid is no longer available for possession offences. So, people are having to go to court unrepresented. They'll get representation at a, at a police station for interview but the idea is that if you've been caught in possession of a drug say cannabis you can work out what the right penalty is for you so for example if um, it's your first occasion you should get a cannabis warning however if the police are arresting you and threatening you with prosecution 
then you often feel lost. So what this does is allow you to work out, well, I should ask for that because that's what the guidance says. And if they refuse and go ahead, we provide you with template letters that you can then write to the CPS and say, under the guidance, I should have got a cannabis warning. Please put this back to the police so I can get a cannabis warning. And if that doesn't work, then you can go to court and present all of those letters and all of the arguments to the court in the hope that they will exercise their power and um, ensure that justice is met. And send people back. So it, it covers all drugs. It's a brilliant piece of work. Uh, I suggest everybody goes online, uh, release.org.uk. It's on the front page. Download the app. Yeah, make sure you know your rights. Absolutely brilliant. Round of applause for Nave, I think. Um, just one thing to mention before we uh, go back to the MPs is that next week on the 26th, that's Tuesday, um, is, uh, it's UN uh, anti, World Anti-Drugs Day, um, which has been significantly reclaimed by the drug law reform movement in the form of uh, the, the, the Support Don't Punish campaign, um, which is active in 180 cities around the world. And um, this year in London, uh, activities being organised by Anyone's Child, uh, the Anyone's Child campaign. This is their T-shirt I'm wearing. Um, and they're going to be meeting in uh, Parliament Square. What time, Jane? College Green at three o'clock. College Green at three o'clock. Um, and then we're going to be uh, processing into the uh, into Parliament to meet with a whole load of MPs. And I'm, I'm pleased to say about 15 MPs have said they will come and meet with us already. And hopefully we'll be getting a few more before then. So uh, we're going to get people who've been impacted by the drug war, activists, and a whole range of people are going to be get, uh, getting involved, telling, telling MPs that they feel it's time to uh, end the war on drugs and begin a debate on reform. So I hope that as many people as possible can join us then. And if you want to get more information, check out the Anyone's Child website or speak to Jane afterwards. Thanks very much. Applause for anyone's child. And, and Jane is just such a, a worker on this. I, I take my hat off to you in so many different ways, Jane, for organising this. And if you can get to it next week, please do, because how can you argue with anyone's child? And actually, I, I think I'll frame that in a question. Um, Ronnie, how can you argue with, <laughs> <laughs> with anyone's child? I wasn't planning on arguing with anyone's child. <laughs> Do it. Uh, though, as I've stated earlier, I don't know if we're recording that, but I found the, the, one of the most powerful things is when you get that personal testimony. And uh, if you can find somebody, it's a horrible thing to say, but if you could find somebody in that situation, every single constituency, and take them to your MP, then you're home and dry. Because that, that's how you win it. A good example there. Everything comes down to us walking through lobbies. I don't know which lobby you walk through there. Obviously, presumably different. In that, in that case, not the one I was in, as I've learned down here. Yeah, yeah. But that's what it comes down to. It comes down to... Six, six, speaker doesn't vote and all that sort of contrivance. But it comes down to MPs walking through a lobby that say aye or no. And that, that's honestly that's how it's done. So if you can convince enough to walk through the lobby you want to walk through, given that the government don't play games and kill bills and talk them out and do all the things that the, they can play at... But if you get to that point where you've got a vote and you've convinced enough MPs to vote one way, and a lot of these things could be votes of conscience, in which case the whip's not applied. If the whip's not applied, you're really in with a shout. And, and, oh, that, that's the, the game we play. Yeah. Uh, the question's quite an important one. And uh, obviously we have the, uh, the arguments against anyone's child that come from the, the campaign group that happens to be based in the Prime Minister's constituency. And I've now forgotten her name, the exact name of the campaign group. People in here will know. Fa fam family, fa no, there's a fam drug, is it? What's it called? Drug fam. Drug, drug fam. And the person who leads that? 
Elizabeth, as you can tell, this is an expert audience, obviously a lot more expert than me, uh, but at least I remember that it existed and it was there. And, and, and you've then got people who are then arguing for prohibition, that, uh, uh, that, the, that the only uh, proper route is abstinence, and that if you've got people addicted, you've then got to get them abstinent to get them... Uh, that's, got, that's got to be the objective of, uh, of treatment. And I have certainly learned in... Uh, time, not particularly from uh, in the last year, but I've become much more suspicious about the management of uh, drug addiction and, uh, and drug use, of saying that the only answer is, addiction, is, is, uh, is abstinence. And that you keep going around the boy... Uh, supported by this very expensive uh, industry that's that's uh, going to give you residential treatment to get you clean, um, and you keep on doing it until you've uh, until you've got the message and you've and you and you're clean. And the fact is uh, that there are obviously a entire range of how people are able to survive and hold down uh, jobs of all sorts um, with some varying degrees of drug use within their uh, within within their life and. All of us will have seen uh, people who ha have got themselves into a mess with alcohol, which, of course, is, a, is, a, is quite a dangerous, pretty dangerous drug in the, in the, in the, in the list of drugs. And uh, how are people able to manage that? And you can see whether there are... Uh, uh, sometimes I just think that, this, that the kind of AA, NA approach is rather... It, it, it's good for some people. It might be great for a lot of people. But it is not the only answer, and uh, we've got to we've got to need to get a better understanding of supporting people when they get into a mess um, with uh, whatever drug drug they're using. And and then and so the so the message therefore being given by the by the you know, the abstinence brigade uh, is yes they might be they might be right for some people who've got into who who've got out of control and that might be the only, the only place that they're going to. Uh, get control back over their lives. But I think for a lot of other people, they can be taught responsible uh, use. It's, I think it can be quite surprising for people that work in the sector that the Conservatives were pretty forward-thinking in the 80s with needle exchange and implemented it against you know, public opinion in many ways. Yeah. Do you think you can have that same position again where it won't be against public opinion now because I think, I mean, certainly polls from Transform show that people are very much understanding drug law reform. But do you think that the Conservatives can lead again on this issue? Well, in the 1980s, we were faced with the uh, HIV AIDS uh, emergency. And the country was extremely lucky to have Norman Fowler as the health secretary at the time, uh, which is why he, uh, to many gay men, he's a hero. He saved, a, he, uh, his reaction to that, he saved a shed load of lives and equally for obviously for drug users and and the, the emergency then was how do we stop this spreading um needle exchange is obviously is obviously a very sensible uh policy development to try and reduce reduce the spread uh and in those in those circumstances he started to play took the decision um i don't know the exact history of the decision making how much of it had to be cleared by cabinet and the rest or whether he just did it as health secretary uh but but certainly the the cabinet and the whole government under Margaret Thatcher uh, clearly signed up to the whole HIV-AIDS 
agenda, which I think in the, in the UK was probably one of the more uh, substantial public health successes um, that, that can be claimed for probably any, any global administration. Um, it contrasted with what was happening in the United States under uh, in the Reagan administration. It took quite a long time, I think, to get to the uh, uh, to, to get to that place and get seized of the uh, importance of it. Uh, and so, one would hope that uh, I mean the the joy of the Conservative Party is that we, uh, when the evidence changes, uh, we change, and uh, and so we are in the end ultimately a very pragmatic party and. Uh, there are some ideologues, and they're regarded with, with pretty grave suspicion, um, and we'll take uh, you know, some inspiration from them. But in the end, um, pragmatism uh, will out. It's, it's interesting, Ronnie. It's the same arguments, again, that when people put in an opposition to needle exchange, it's because it was drug-enabling. It's because it was against moral code. And it's the same position we've got now against drug consumption rooms. It's against medical cannabis. People are still arguing a moral position. Where are the morals? Are they subjective? Do you think we've got a moral obligation to actually save lives just as we did in the HIV epidemic? I think there's still a feeling in some aspects of society that a drug consumption room is enabling people to take drugs. The fact that they're already taking drugs doesn't seem to to register with them. And the problem we've had in Glasgow was that the the needle exchange was closed because of the the, the detritus which was necessarily travelling from that into the surrounding area. And understandably, people get annoyed if they go into their bins and there's used needles and bloody wipes and stuff like that sitting there. So we said, great solution here, drug consumption rooms. We'll give you the needles, you can consume it in the room, everything's safe, everything's supervised, fantastic. And we thought we were getting there. Slight hiccup in the law. And what we need is uh, maybe the moral compass of the, of the Conservative Party to swing in that direction and say, you know what, drug consumption is actually a very good idea for all the good ideas, for, for safe consumption, for the, the, the neighbourhoods, for, for, for a whole host of reasons. We know that DCRs work, and they work very, very well. But at this moment in time, and I'm, I'm not being too political on this, we know that the, the Home Office are completely against it. And because, from what they've stated in this fact, they're very badly briefed. The facts and figures they're putting down simply don't stand up to any sort of scrutiny. So they've gone back into their silo of saying, we're right and you're wrong, and that, that's where we, we currently stand. Do you think devolved powers are going to play a part in this? Do you think we are actually going to get movement within Scotland and Wales, which could potentially put pressure on Westminster? Yeah. I mean, it's understandably our position. Every time Westminster say, we're not going to do that for you, we say, well, give us a pause, we'll make it happen. And in DCRs, that's certainly one of the areas we've said that. Give us the, the laws in Scotland and we will Im- implement DCRs, first of all in Glasgow, and then there's a need, or oh, every major town and city needs one. So we will do that in Scotland, given the powers. I'd like to think this is obviously a, it's a worldwide problem. Other people are talking about it, we know Arthur Jones and, and Ron Hogg and stuff like that. If they can get one road out, I think if we get one road out in any city, in any part of the United Kingdom, other areas look at it and say, we want one of those. Because they'll simply see it from day one, the problems it solves. It's, it shouldn't be a political thing. It's, it's, it's like it's, it's, a, it's a compassion. It's not about any sort of political doctrine. But I think the, the resistance with public, which is what the question about, is simply a case of thinking. Yeah, you hear it all the time. The language comes very difficult to me. But here, people are saying, you know, you know, these, these druggies are doing this, and they get that for nothing, and that's their attitude. And people will stigmatise people who have got drug addiction problems. People are problematic users. And it's convenient to stigmatise them and use them as the, sort of the butt of all our grievances in life. I've not got this because we're spending so much taxpayers' money on that. Why have we not got enough nurses when we're doing this? Why have we not got enough police in the beat? We're supporting that druggie at the end of the road. He's getting this and he's shooting on his arm. And that's a scapegoat for society, which the media certainly like to play their part in. 
what kind of conversations you we we discuss medical cannabis and cannabis and the conversations that you have privately is there much of an appetite within the parties for drug consumption rooms and a movement on heroin heroin assisted treatment this is in big policy well, plainly, it's not the government position, as uh, we saw in the response from the government to uh, the debate Ronnie had on uh, on drug consumption rooms. Uh, but it, there is a shed load of evidence that there are other countries who have drug consumption rooms and are able to evidence the benefit from it. And I obviously still need to see the fallout from the drugs minister's uh, response to Ronnie's debate when she was had been badly briefed on what was happening in Canada. Uh, and so we need to... You know, we need to concentrate on the evidence, um, and that's how we. Uh, uh, and in the end, that's how we uh, can ad- can advance this, and how other countries have managed the contradiction about having a safe space for people to take illegally supplied heroin uh, into a drug consumption room and then safely shoot up with something that they have acquired criminally. Um, there are some rather ugly. Uh, compromises with the criminal law and that whole of that process and what's then required of the police um, in order to enable those drug consumption rooms to function function safely. Uh, now, obviously, all of that gets addressed if you have a proper debate about prohibition and you and you uh, uh, and you move to and you move to a different uh, different legal framework. Uh, but it's in the meantime, uh, it's also about changing society's attitudes towards drug addicts uh, and. Uh, our inability really to see people, uh, to see them as you know, people deserving of sympathy and help. And uh, in my time in the, in the prison system, uh, I've you know, been around saying the saddest thing I saw in visiting 70 prisons is the queue for methadone. Uh, emaciated men queuing up to, you know, to have, make sure they take their medicine so the nurse supervisors they actually swallow the stuff so they don't take it back to their cell and to trade it, to trade it later. Uh, and you kind of know that these people are then will have sustained their, their addiction as part of the uh, source of 50% of acquisitive crime in the UK. And when they're released, um, they're almost certainly going to go straight back into the same cycle. This is not a terribly intelligent place to be. And actually, those people are deserving. Uh, one, they're deserving of support as humans who got themselves into a, Our fellow citizens who've got themselves into a frightful mess and need help, but they're incredibly expensive. Uh, and it would be an idea. There's an there's a enormous amount that can be done in terms of payment by results of actually proper support uh, to, uh, to people like that to reduce the burden on society by helping them get well. And a lot of that is about uh, society's attitude to them. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's too easy just to, in one sense, say, yeah, they've got themselves into that mess. But it's actually in our interest that we help get them out of it. Do you think this is where the, the, the conversation around mental health in general come in, is to make people realise that when we are having a discussion about drug dependency, it's not about the drugs. It's about someone's life circumstances, possible childhood trauma. Are we having that conversation now? Do you think we can actually grasp that within the media as well? I think in circles we are, but I, don't, I have not really seen that in mainstream media. Maybe I'm just reading the wrong newspapers. But the, the, the style was how it be. I, I came into this when I was first standing for election in 2015. The one of the guys who stand against me was for the party uh, cannabis is less, less harm than alcohol. So I got to know this guy during the course of the campaign. And at the end of the campaign, I was voting for him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I, I, so he got me going and started rolling on it and learning about it. And one of the stats which hit me was that 90% of people consuming drugs don't have a problem. And it's that, there's still this, he takes drugs. And it's, it's thank him, touch on the ground. Alcohol is okay. You know? I've lost count, 15 bars in this place. Not that I go to them, but I keep on 
doing the research of it. And people get bladdered in this place day in, day out. Yeah? Some of them even go and talk to the chamber. Yeah? It's, that's like I said, but societies have said alcohol was okay. Yeah, but, but other side, I, I digress there, but we, we, we know, it's, it's frustrating, and I know I'm talking to an audience that knows this as well as I do, we know, we understand that people who are driven into addiction problem have come probably from poverty, certainly from some sort of abuse, whether it be sexual abuse or physical abuse during their childhood, and that takes up a whole load of people who have then got in there. There's a small number of people who've actually got a kick out of it, and it's become like a chemical attachment to their brain. That's a very small number over the, over the whole piece, and I don't think that message is actually going forward to society yet. But still, okay, so people take drugs because they want to take drugs. They put the, they put the needle in their arm. Their problem. There are some really surprising statistics like that one. The fact that 90% of people that consume drugs do it unproblematically. Uh, I don't know if we're remotely able to have that conversation yet in society that drug use predominantly is not problematic. And I think well, that's exact. That's works for alcohol as it does for drugs that are illegal. Uh, so is it because? A previous podcast guest of ours was mentioning the bars in, in the House of Commons. Is it as prevalent as what we'd imagine, the drinking culture around here? Because the, the outside looking in, we have a certain position. This leads me up to a question about our perception of Westminster, because a lot of people do think that the Westminster bubble is exactly that. I come from Kent. When I come into Westminster, it is a different world. Are we, is Westminster in touch with the general public, is what I'm getting at? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very long question. answer. This place is uh, it's many things, but it's not in touch. It's, 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 a, it's a museum. It's, a, it's an art gallery. It's, a, it's, a, it's an office block. It's a, the, the functioning uh, legislator for the United Kingdom, but it's so insular. And it's designed that way. You can come in here in the morning on the tube. I've got our own private entrance from the tube station. So you can walk in there and not even talk to the public. Because uh, goodness knows we don't want to do that. They might, they might educate us. So we come in here. We can get your breakfast in here. You can have a bath in here. You, know? uh, you can get your haircut in here. We've got our own post office in here. Life is in here. There's cash machines, restaurants. And they can do what you've got to do during the course of the day. And even as a late sitting, it's half 10, 11 o'clock at night. You can then go back and tube. Or in fact, if you stay late, you're allowed to get a taxi home. And you'll get paid for that as well. You get paid. That gets paid for you. Like an hour after the usual sitting time. I say that because I, I never use it. So you can be very insular in this place. At the end of the week, go back to your constituency and live within a constituency which you know. And maybe you're very well supported. And not step out. And not see real life. And, and not walk up by... You know, Tottenham Court tube station where there's hundreds of people I can see sleeping rough in that particular part of town right now. And it's very easy. If you want to, you can you can simply live within the Westminster bubble and do your job. Strangely, although sometimes the bane of my life, social media can drag people out of that because you're now accessible through, through your phone, through your iPad. People can ping you all the time and say, you know, where are you? What are you doing? You know, and I get that a lot. Why are you not in the chamber discussing this topic? Well, I'm doing something else. But, but it does mean people are watching, they're watching on telly, they're watching all the time. So we get hounded. It does sometimes feel like hounding from people who would berate me no matter what I do. But it has, it has, it could, it can have a very positive function in actually holding all elected members to account. But I think historically, it would have been very easy just to lose yourself within the bubble of Westminster. And I know maybe that sounds like a cliche, but it's, but it's absolutely true. I would just be a tad more positive about this institution <laughs> than, than, uh, than, uh, than Ronnie. Uh, that what we all have in common is that we are all constituency members of parliament. And so however much one exists in the bubble here, whilst 
Westminster is, uh, is functioning. And we are here incredibly busy. There are... Um, uh, so Ronnie and I take an interest in drugs, and that will take up some of our time uh, as, as members of Parliament. Then we've also got our constituencies, and we've got all the other stuff we're interested in. Um, I, I don't know whether Ronnie has a front-bench role in the, uh, as a spokesman of the SNP, but that's quite likely to be part of one's, uh, uh, one's, one's career here. So you have all sorts of different roles to play within uh, your team and the rest. Uh, frankly, I don't quite know how people find the time to... Uh, get stuck into the stranger's bar or the smoking room for any, any alien exam because I can't, uh, don't, find time, don't find time for it. Uh, um, uh, perhaps I need lessons from Ronnie and time management. Um, but but uh, uh, within, said, within I that... I there was a smoker's room. There's a, there's a smoker's <laughs> room. No, it's called a smoking room. You can't smoke in there. That's all changed. That's, that's got to, <laughs> Regulations. That's um, uh, and the, uh, but, the, but we all go back to our constituencies. Uh, and there is then, and that's if you like the, and then the, the golden link of the constituency system is kind of the golden argument for it, is that we remain anchored in our uh, in our constituencies. Now, uh, you could choose to not meet anyone in your constituency and not engage at all, but then I suspect that your party and your constituents are going to get um, are not going to be wildly enthusiastic about someone who is not engaged uh, in the uh, uh, in their local constituency in that way. But there are some safe seats. I mean, I've got a majority of 384, so I'm working all day and all night to keep that. But there are some safe seats. And historically, I think, going back in a few years, there were more safe seats than there are now. You know, certainly in Scotland, SAP was shaken up, and there's no, there are no safe seats now. They're all up for grabs, which is good, because it keeps all 59 of us honest down here. Not that we get my drift. But if you've got a very safe seat, then you can go back and say, I've got a majority of 14,000. What? If you're of that mind, I'm not saying they are, but the, the situation could be there if, you, if you're of that mind. Yeah, gee, thanks, Ronnie. Uh, no, <laughs> so, what, what's, what's your majority? 17. Uh, and it <laughs> Uh, but, but, the, but the point is, you can't. You, you have to. Uh, you can't take anything for granted. Not least because you're um, okay. I will accept. I mean, okay. Rygate did vote Liberal in 1910. Um, uh, uh, but, uh, but, the, but, the, but, the, but the point is, you've got. You have to not only satisfy your electorate. You've got to satisfy your selectorate as uh, as well. And they will want a good representative of the party. Now, it does mean you have a. Uh, uh, you will be constantly being a face on the be accused. Yeah, you're taking it for granted. You're taking the piss. You're not doing anything, um, and you you can't get away with that. Uh, uh, and you certainly shouldn't be able to get to get away with it. You still got to serve your constituents. I'm you now after 20 years here. I am thrilled that I've got you know, probably the best team of people working for me than I've ever had. And I know that the service they help me give my constituents when they come with, forward with problems and everything else is as, is as good as it's good as it's been. But that quality has got to be sustained. And there is much, much more demand on us now um, than there was when I was first elected. And I, I can totally vouch for both of you, actually, that your office is brilliant to work with. Tarsalo, who I know, he's there. Thank you so much, Tarsalo, for today. We would not be here today without Tarsalo. Thank you so much. And Ian, as well, at your office, both absolutely superb. And we have to wrap up now. I'm not sure. I don't know if we're going to get Thangan back, are we? I think she's no, she been did, lost in the lobby somewhere. She did somewhere. say in, in, me on the way, I think I've said everything I've got, I've got to say. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to do a little bit of a wrap-up now. And I think a good point to do is that you both touched on it there is two things international pressure how much is that playing a part on drug policy reform and also social media how much is that holding you to account on drug policy reform as, as a round i don't know if international pressure good examples coming from around the world 
allows us to put pressure on the government to say that works. And we talked about earlier on, uh, I think I mentioned in Christmas as well, that we had a debate in the Westminster Hall where the drug minister, uh, Victoria Atkins, was, was badly advised and she misquoted or she, she disrespected the process that they've got going in Canada and said, oh, that's been, they tried to get rid of it and on the back of that, the Canadian the people responsible for it wrote to her and said, no, we, we didn't. We like it, thank you very much. Uh, you you were wrong, which was good of them, and I thank you for doing that. But she also made the statement that there was only one DCR in Barcelona that's only open two hours a day. And that was wrong. We knew that was wrong. So we tried to push her on that. And I'm going to Barcelona this summer on my summer holidays at my own expense, and I fully intend to go around to see DCR and taking a picture of it and sending it back. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So that's what takes on the social media, and that's the idea of social media. You know, I you can do a tour of all the DCRs I, in Spain to demonstrate there's more than one. It, it would take a lot. It would take a long time, and that's the the point. Uh, I think that's an Instagram post, anyway. I think. So. Instagram. Instagram. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm the same. I have. Yeah. yeah. So that that is a point we can in social media. You know, we put out tweets, and they can, if, if the right person retweets it, uh, it can hit hundred thousand people. Yeah, how many take it on board? But it's, it's that we, in all campaigns, we've got in the history of putting leaflets through doors. And you know, if you put through 10,000 leaflets, you know, 9,000 of them go straight in the bin. 1,000 people read them, 100 people engage in it, and 10 people really get the message you're putting through there. But it's because you're banged every single door and put through every single leaflet. With a tweet, you can do that sort of same thing. So social media is absolutely a way of us putting a message out there, but also for us learning the number. I sit today and I follow tweets, and I see a link and I go and read an article with somebody. I wasn't going to read William Hayes' article. Because yeah? I said it on, someone says SP, they go, well, I'm not reading that. I see William Hague, I thought, I'm not reading that. But I knew it was about in a tweet, so I followed the link. Is that you? We're okay, no, adjournment. So, so I followed the link and I read the article. And if, without that being there, I'm not going to sit there and read every single newspaper been printed that day. Some people do, some people go to the tea room, that's their morning routine. All the papers out of the newspaper and go flooding all through them. But if I can do it through social media, and I know the people I'm following, the people tuned to be, I've got similar interests, whether it be uh, drugs or gambling or changing the laws on, on, on a range of things, then that makes it easier for me to engage in, in, the, in the good stuff. But also, I think of the discipline to go read the stuff where I disagree with it and, and see what people are saying about it as well. How do you respond to that, Chris? Would you agree that we've got international examples that we can follow, and also is social media making an impact nowadays in, in policy making? Social media certainly makes you busier and, and gives you and is then, uh, but is then is then drawing you to areas exactly as, as as Ronnie points out that you're then becoming aware of things you wouldn't be aware of. Uh, it is of course then the obsession with having the you know the phone is constantly there and your and you, how much of your attention is much more widely spread uh, now. How much that is a good thing or not, it's up to Tarzillo to control me and make sure that the paper flow into my office is uh, uh, is that I'm actually getting 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 through getting through the business. Uh, internationally is should be the prime source of our evidence the idea that everything only happens in the united kingdom um is touching but uh uh but of course completely wrong and and we're going to see from north america a whole bunch of different examples about the legalization and regulation of uh, recreational cannabis um it, and so we can, we, there are lots of examples in North America about the right approach to medicinal cannabis and how what's the right uh, regime for doctor's prescription and everything else. Uh, and equally, right across the rest of the world, is then also producing the evidence of the horror stories of the global cost of prohibition. Uh, and uh, if you want to... I mean, I, I, went, to, I mean, went to Iran um, uh, on a visit in 2007. In the previous year, they had lost almost 3,000 border guards uh, fighting the drugs gangs, smuggling uh, 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 
opium or heroin over the, over the border from Afghanistan. They were fighting a war, which we were blissfully unaware of, um, but, but, but a, a horrifying, horrifying cost. And you could see the impact of drugs on society in, uh, uh, in, in, in Tehran uh, as well on the, on the streets. And uh, equally, obviously, you then look at the example of what's happened to Mexico. 30,000 dead in the last year, just in the wars between the cartels and by ownership of this business. It is... Um, uh, and so internationally, we look at what is happening and the catastrophe that is drugs policy, uh, implications of it. There is the evidence for why our global policy has been for five decades a copper-bottom disaster. Well, I think, unless you've got anything else to say, that's a good wrap-up point. Very briefly, just on what Crispin touched on there, looking at international evidence, and I've got a statement that was made today, and I'm, 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 I'm concerned of the medical cannabis, because the statement says, part one of the commission will consider the evidence available for the medicinal therapeutic benefits of cannabis-based medicines, and I really wanted them to go and say they would take on board evidence gathered already abroad, and they haven't quite come out and publicly stated that. Had he said he was going to go to the places where we know uh, 30 of the United States and 13 countries and take on board the medical evidence already gathered, I would have thought, OK, fine, now, now we're moving really forward at pace. If we're going to stop and do all that work all over again, it's going to slow the process down. But I say that's only what the written word. Maybe verbally he would, he would see something different. And again, one very quick point then. Can I tempt you into making a prediction where do you England, think England will win the World Cup there you go <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I got them enough as sweepstake John makes our little social media characters up for us we need that as the quote I think <laughs> this time next year where do you think we'll be I, I genuinely don't know. I'm not an experienced enough politician to see how these things can move on. Christmas got much more experience than I have. Um, I would like to, I know, I know where we would like this to be. We all know where we would like to be. Uh, a year is a year long enough to have it, to have medical cannabis available under prescription from GPs. I would like to think so. I doubt very much it will be at that stage. I think given the, 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 what they're trying to set up now and what we can already predict is going to happen, a year from now, we will be clamouring for that to happen. Whether it's that we've got over that line or not, I would like to think so. I continue to be a little bit sceptical. And Crispin? No, we'll be, we'll be on the way there. Exactly how far we've got on the journey to actually have proper access to uh, medicine derived from cannabis uh, widely available. There's still a shed load more research to be done. You know, we're decades behind because of the where cannabis was listed in 1961. Uh, so there's a lot of in that sense, research catch-up to do. And it's, it's a tricky area to research in because you're not dealing with a single molecule, you're dealing with a whole plant, plant product. And so the science has got to come to terms with it's actually rather more complex to, uh, to assess than some, than, some other, uh, than some other medicines. But we'll be, we, will be on the, we will be well on the road. Today was a seminal, seminal day uh, in achieving that. And so in that sense, I get the sense we've... Uh, today was the kind of strategic change... Uh, and we've then just got to hold the government's feet to the fire to make sure that this that it that they proceed at at, at satisfactory satisfactory pace to get this get this to get this done. Uh, on the other issues around the wider debate around around prohibition, uh, 
we're still going to be in an evidence-taking session. So we've got the opportunity to look and see what's happening in North America uh, around the, the, the legal and regulated cannabis markets they're establishing. And there is going to be, obviously, a strong debate there about the evidence that comes out of it. One heard some, some American on the Today program this morning who is from the prohibitionist side uh, trying to draw out um, from particular statistics uh, that it wasn't going so well in Oregon and plainly the one things weren't accounted for. The massive strength of the argument and all the overall public uh, benefits that there are to harm reduction to society. Uh, those arguments are on our side. Uh, we've got to now take the opportunity to get the evidence into the UK and then hopefully um, uh, the two main parties here will at some point get to a place in the British system. The assessment will have to be done by a Royal Commission, um, which will then get us politicians collectively out of the hole that we're always tempted to, to get into is, you know, drugs are bad, they are banned. Because that's a safe place, that's a safe moral place to be. The fact that it has frightful uh, consequences, it's clear that we have got to demonstrate the, what the frightful consequences are. And that's why, you know, Neil's book is utterly, utterly brilliant. And it's, a fan, it's going to be a fantastic tool in, in making the case. And JS. And JS. Oh, JS. <laughs> Very briefly, just if the government's going to do this great research into the hemp plant, I hope they do it in the round. Use understand that the hemp plant itself could be planted in vast quantities. It's good for the soil we grow it in, and it can be made almost anything you can make out of plastic. You can make out of the hemp plant, and it's completely biodegradable. So there's a whole range of problems they can address just by looking at this wonderful plant. Well, I think. If everybody's lost enough weight in sweat, I think <laughs> we can call it. If you can give a massive round of applause and thank you, Christian Blunt, Ronnie Cowan. And thank you all for coming and, and weathering this. And thank you for Tarsalo for, for organising this. And thank you to everybody that came. Have a great evening, wouldn't you? Well, it was an historic day. I think it's fairly apt to say that that might be an historic podcast it was certainly a, a moment in time that we managed to capture and on the subject of that we i've just recently published a blog on virgin saying that we're looking for donations of conversation and i know that's a really uh pr marketing way of wording it but basically as we heard from this conversation just now they work they help public figures, people that have been involved in this drug policy, people that have been affected by drug policy, MPs, lords, these are all people we need to speak to. These all help push this conversation forward. So if you can think of anybody, please tweet them, please let them know. If you can if you can actually get someone to come on the podcast and show an interest, please do. And also, if you can share this podcast around, it really helps. So thank you for doing all the support and listening that you do and one I'm on the subject thank you thank you so much to John Harris the Distraction Pieces Network social media worker he does so much please listen to his podcast The Dream Factory please listen to Say Why to Drugs with Susie Gage so Susie was in attendance for that podcast and I wanted to speak to her but we ran out of time because Susie has created such a platform for non-biased scientific education on drugs and that is so necessary so thank you so much for Susie for your support and thank you for doing what you're doing. And of course, the other Distraction Pieces Network guys, thank you Scroobius Pitt for just being an absolute legend for having us on there and getting us where we are today. Thank you to Chris and Stu, Hardcore Listening, please listen to them. And of course, Tuesday Night Joy with Jim Smallman, 
please listen to him as well. And also our social media as well, of course, Leap UK, at UK Leap on Twitter, UKLeap.org on the internet, at UKLeap on Instagram, and UKLeap.org on Facebook. And of course, I need to thank My Name Is Ad as well. He does all of our artwork for us. He's just recently added on our award laurels. Thank you so much for that. John Cross, thank you for all you're doing on Elite UK social media. And thank you so much, Nikki and Tristan, the producers of Stop and Search, who give up so much time and effort to this. And I think on that ramble, I'm done. So on that historic occasion, I'm signing off. Thank you so much for listening to Stop and Search. I'll see you on the next one. Bye. Behind your barricade. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricade. Where true values seldom stray. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.